He is an activist. He, uh, in my opinion, uh, sort of uh, carries the mantle of, of prophet for the Capital C Worldwide Church. Uh, and we're particularly glad to have him here with us today. And Shane, uh, at least as far as my recollection uh, recollects, uh, is the only man that I can recall who's ever thrown me through a wall. And so would you please give a very warm Journey Church welcome to our friend Shane Claiborne. Yeah, we were college roommates and he made me mad. This is before I was a pacifist. This is when I was a kind of pacifist, a pacifist through your head. No, we had fun, didn't we? We'll tell you college stories later. But I'm I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to coming to Journey Church, uh, not just because I get to go snowmobiling this afternoon, but uh, to be with you all. And uh, I ended up staying in Philly. Um, We went to college together back in the 1900s, and then I stayed there. uh, But... You know, Philly's an interesting place because I can remember growing up in East Tennessee, coming up to Philly and being scared to death that people were going to mug me. Um, and um, that didn't happen for the first few years. But my, my, I can remember, you know, Philadelphia means the city of love. You know that, right? Philadelphia. Phileo is one of the three words in Greek for love. Uh, I think it's just because agape, which is the better love, um, Agapadelphia doesn't work as well. So, but I think, you know, Philadelphia city of brotherly and sisterly love, and sometimes it is, but then other times I can remember one of my friends telling me about the first time he got mugged in Philly, and this time was real interesting because a guy came up and said, give me your money. So my buddy sort of, you know, panics. He kind of tosses his wallet at the guy and takes off, and the dude mugging him yelled at him, and he was like, whoa, 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 come back. I just want the money. I'll give you a license and credit cards and all the other stuff uh, back. I don't want to inconvenience you. <laughs> he said, this is not New York City. This is Philly, brother. You know, so that's our city. Uh, I love it. Proud of it. But I, I grew up in, in East Tennessee, which is about as different from North Philly as it gets. Uh, I mean, we went, you know, fishing and hunting, a lot of the stuff y'all do. When Brian first came down to Tennessee to visit my family, we had squirrel gravy, didn't we? We shot some squirrels and made squirrel gravy. Um, Oh, yum. Uh, and, and, you know, but I, I, it's a little town that I grew up in, in the Bible Belt there. And I brought you a newspaper that I read growing up. This one, it, the newspaper we had was called the Daily Times. So this is it. It's a few years old and been through a lot. But I hold on to it because it it, it, it just has a starky, like, like, like just such a stark uh, revelation, I think, of the world that we live in. My buddy is a pastor. He handed it to me. and He said, check this out. What do you notice? And what, what I immediately notice is the glaring front page headline, which in the middle there says, Waiting to Die. And it's a story of a village in Afghanistan where the kids are struggling from such desperate poverty that they're crushing grass and weeds together in order to make biscuits. And that's what they're eating. Uh, but then he said, what, what else do you notice? And I looked a little harder. And up in the right-hand corner there, it says, Obesity in America. It's costing us $117 billion a year. And you flip the, the page, and the, the, the second headline is that obesity is a national health crisis in North America. And it says there's a number of piece, reasons that you can be overweight. It's not just people that are irresponsible with their eating. But it says the fact is that almost half a million people 
are dying every year in, in America because they're just overeating, overconsuming. And that's the world that we live in. And you look at that world and you go, I'm pretty sure that's not the world God dreamed of, you know. And not only are the poor suffering, but the, the rich are suffering, you know. And, and in fact, I was over in Europe recently, and they said, you want to hear something wild? Like, in the wealthiest places of the world, check it out. Like, the statistics are the wealthiest places in the world have the highest rates of lonely, loneliness, depression, and suicide. We're some of the richest, most miserable people in the world. And you go, I think God wants more for the world than that. Uh, but, you know, growing up, I didn't necessarily hear about that world. I went to youth group, and we played games, and uh, some of them were great games. I, I remember one of them, like, was a Velcro wall where you would wear this sticky suit and run and jump and stick to the wall for Jesus, you know. But there came a moment where I I felt like the church was entertaining me and wasn't trusting me with the the pain of the world that we live in, you know. And, And in a lot of ways, our Christianity can be a way that we escape the realities of the pain of our world, you know. And, and I, I, I certainly grew up, uh, you know, with, with that pattern where uh, we would come forward every summer at these festivals, you know, with speakers and music and everything and games, and we'd give our life to Jesus. And I can remember getting born again and then going the next summer and getting born again again. And like doing that every year we'd come singing just as, we, uh, just as I am, you know, at the altar and leave just as we were and keep living just like we always had, you know. And I think a lot of times we promised a suffering world that there's life after death and what they're really asking is, is there life before death? You know, doesn't this Bible have anything to speak into the brokenness of the world that we live in? And I'm convinced the more that I read the words of Jesus, that Jesus did not just come to prepare us to die, but to teach us how to live. And how to love in the brokenness of this world. And don't get me wrong, I'm excited about the afterlife. I mean, we'll party like there's no tomorrow and there won't be. You know, but, but in the end, I think that the kingdom of God that Jesus talks about is something that's coming on earth as, as it is in heaven. And we're invited to be a part of that, to live uh, for that mission. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, one of the, the great stories that I, I love is where Jesus in Matthew 25 This is Jesus' account of the final judgment. Pretty important. You probably want to pay attention to this one. You know, so I I read it in Matthew 25. And it's interesting because Jesus says, all of the nations, everybody on earth is before God, and we're going to be asked a few questions. And interestingly enough, it's not a doctrinal test. You know, I, I think maybe some of us would wish it were. You know that God would go, okay, virgin birth. Agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. You know, but creation, seven-day literal, or was that figure? Those actually are not the questions we're asked. According to Jesus, Jesus is going to say, when I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me in? When I was sick, did you care for me? That ultimately, uh, the, the test of our faith is how it works itself out in compassion and love, and that's what I wanted, because I saw that, like, 
we can have all the right t-shirts, but the world's not going to know that we're like Christians by our t-shirts and bumper stickers, but by our love, you know, and, and, and I wanted to know how to live uh, my faith out. So I ended up going to Eastern actually to study sociology. I went to the university to study sociology on the one hand and the Bible on the other. I like how Karl Barth, the theologian, said we have to read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And ask the question about how the, our faith in the God of heaven affects the world that we live in now. And it was interesting that when I was at Eastern, I had some great profs. But what really happened was my faith uh, was ignited when I started hanging out with folks on the street and folks that were hurting. Uh, in particular, in 1995, there was an experience in Philadelphia where a group of homeless families, mostly women and children, uh, which is incidentally the fastest growing homeless population in our country, women and children, and there was little shelter space. So they had come together and they started, uh, they had moved into an abandoned Catholic uh, church building. So they were living in this church building. It was their home. And we heard that the Catholic church had given them 48 hours to get out or they could be arrested for trespassing. And that didn't feel right, you know. <laughs> so we got involved in that struggle. And that was really the catalyst that started our little experiment in Philadelphia. That uh, lasted. That struggle lasted for months and months. And we moved into the neighborhood. And we started asking questions about what would it look like if God's dream came in Philadelphia. And what does it look like to be a part of it? We started to see other really ugly things in Philly that the city was doing to sort of shun folks that were homeless or kind of spread them out. I mean, that's what we want to do often, you know, when there's homeless folks, we uh, put them on Greyhounds to Butte or Billings or get them out of Philadelphia or something, right? But And that's what happened in Philly. Philly began to pass laws that actually made it illegal to sleep in the public parks or illegal to lie down on the sidewalk, illegal to ask for money, uh, effectively creating a sense of, of uh, uh, it was illegal to be homeless. And, and one of the final laws that Philly passed was a law that made it illegal to distribute food. So even uh, if you were, you know, with the church or ministry, if, if you could not give out food legally in downtown Philadelphia. And um, that causes a little bit of a problem, you know, because we're trying to figure out how to love our neighbors ourselves and respect the authorities on one hand. But on the other hand, like we, we started praying about it and we opened up the Bible to Luke 14, which is an interesting passage because it's where Jesus talks about how we as kingdom people are to throw parties. And Jesus says, but you're to do it a little different from the way the world does it. Like when you throw a party, don't invite your friends. Uh, you just kind of scratch, scratch your head, you know, and, and Jesus said, don't invite your friends, don't invite your neighbors or your relatives. When you throw a party, you are to invite the poor, the hurting, the marginalized, the people who would not be invited to anybody else's party. That's, that's, the, kind of, that, that's the kind of shindig you throw, you know. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. And, and, and so we decided to have that kind of party. We gathered in downtown Philadelphia, and we invited all of our homeless friends, and we... Um, brought our guitars and drums and we we played some music and we sang some worship songs and then we decided uh that we would have communion which was really kind of pushing the envelope you know uh, you, you're not allowed to distribute food so of course if you're catholic you don't think it's food at all but actually the body and blood so we're like hey we're all catholic here today um I'm glad like three of you got that joke. Um, and so then after the breaking of the bread, though, we would bring in some pizzas. And that was really pushing the envelope. You know, all the police are around. They're like, 
I'm not arresting them. In fact, I'm going to grab a slice of pepperoni. You know, and, and then I, I, we, we would sleep out in the parks. And, and eventually, um, we, we were calling these laws into question. We did that on and off for a lot of weeks, and we got away with it. And then one night, the police were ordered to come in and to arrest everybody in the park. And we were handcuffed, taken to jail, and charged with disorderly conduct for sleeping yeah, I was like, wow, someone must have been snoring. Uh, you know, and, and we, we ended up fighting it in court. And I mean, it made big news. So all these folks started voicing their support, and they came to court to support us. We decided that we had a lot of bigwig lawyers that came, but we decided we wanted to be spoken for by one of the folks who had lived this struggle day in and day out. So our buddy Alfonso, who had spent a lot of his life on the streets, uh, we all knew him as Fonz, and he, he represented us in court. So Fonz stands up in court. You know, we're, we're there. I had a T-shirt on that said Jesus was home. And the first thing the judge does is he goes, come here. Jesus was homeless. Huh. I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, your honor, in the scripture, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And the judge said, huh, you guys might stand a chance. And uh, we, we did. Uh, Fonzo stood up and Fon said, uh, he said, on behalf of the group, your honor, I'd like to say that we believe these laws are evil and wrong. And then he sat down. <laughs> We're like, yeah, what he said, you know. And uh, we went back and forth and uh, the district attorney was not amused. The prosecuting attorney, she was throwing the book at us. She wanted us to go to jail and serve time. She wanted us to have thousands of dollars worth of fines that we had already been given. She said they've got to pay them. Um, and then she, she wanted us to have hours and hours of community service. <laughs> that's, that's, that was the killer. You know, they're like, no, don't make us feed the homeless. Besides, it's illegal. You know, but then we, so we, like, there we are. We're arguing our case, you know. And uh, the judge says this. The judge says, whoa, 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 whoa. What's in question is not whether or not these people broke the law. It's really clear to me that they broke the law. What's in question is the constitutionality and the rightness of the laws that were passing in the city. And, and the, the dis- district attorney, she said, no, 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 that's not before this court. And, and the judge shot back, oh, that's before every court in the country. If it weren't for people who broke unjust laws, we wouldn't have the freedom that we have. That's what this country's built on from the Boston Tea Party to the Civil Rights Movement. We would still have slavery. And he said, uh, these guys are not criminals. They're freedom fighters. And I find them all not guilty on every charge. And he dropped all of our charges that day. Yeah, that was a good, good judge. Um, and, you know, as what I realized through it is, is that we are inevitably going to experience some kind of collision and dissonance with the world that we live in as the people of God, that we are to live into different patterns, you know? Uh, in fact, that struggle can, like, is not over in Philly. And there's a congregation right around the corner from us that's been doing that same hospitality for years. They've been uh, opening up their church building during the week so that homeless families can sleep there uh, and, and be warm. And, and the city began to crack down on them this is this year Uh, the city said you're not uh, licensed to run a shelter uh, and you can't be doing that kind of thing and um, so they they began to shut down on it and and this is a little Pentecostal congregation so they got together and prayed you know and then they came back to the city and they said all right we hear you 
We do not have license to run a shelter, so we will not run a shelter. But we will be having an all-night revival. Every night this year, it'll start at 8 at night and end in the morning whenever we're ready. And if you want to try to shut down the revival, we dare you, you know. And uh, it was amazing how the city backed down, you know. And uh, I, I went one night to the revival, and it started at 8. And we, uh, I mean, all these families on the street and stuff were there. And we, we worship. We have communion. And then at about 10 o'clock, they're like, okay, that ends our official uh, time together. We're going to have about 10 hours of silent prayer now. And, uh, uh, but I, I think it's that kind of imagination that we need in this world, that this world's so hungry for. As Romans says, we're not to conform to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to, to have a new creativity and imagination with the way that we live in the world. And I think what's amazing about the time that we live in right now is that people are asking really big questions about the patterns of the world that we live in. You know, patterns of, is this uh, world sustainable? Or maybe even more importantly, is this the kind of world that, that God wants? And what would the kingdom of God look like? Because the current patterns are the average person in North America is co- consuming the same amount as 500 people in Africa. What does it look like to love our neighbor as ourself? Right now, the, the, we have a world that's riddled with violence. In the United States, we, we have the capacity to create over 100,000 Hiroshima's. Like, what, what actually does it look like to follow Jesus in the messed up world that we live in and 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 that's where i get excited because i i i think we we have a whole generation that's coming up in the church and wants to live for something bigger than ourselves and uh wants to to be the 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 kind of kingdom non-conformist to those patterns and one of the other things that's cool about living in philly is we've got the amish and they, they understand a little about what it means to be nonconformist to the world around us. You know, I mean, we might all critique uh, some of the Amish culture of how much you should detach from the world or gender dynamics. I don't know, whatever. But the fact is, like, they're, they're on to something. And I think the, the depth of their life together has such uh, uh, vitality and such uh, relevance to the kind of Christianity that so many of us long for that's known not just by what it believes but by how it lives, you know. And I, I, um, I got invited to speak in Amish country, and uh, they picked me up in a horse-drawn carriage and drove me 30 miles to my speaking event. <laughs> it took a while. So we had a little time to talk, you know, and I'm talking to them. And you hear about their way of life, you know, and how their allegiance to God and Jesus has caused them to live differently, you know. And you can almost hear their kids growing up going, Mom, why do we dress like this? You know, and and them sort of being told, well, because we're different. We're different. We don't think that our beauty comes from what we wear or from what name brand we advertise, but from who we are. So we make our clothes and we make them very simply so that our light shines in other ways, you know. And you can you can hear the, the kids going, uh, um, Dad, uh, why don't we have an Xbox, you know, or why don't we drive cars? Uh, horses are so 1800s, dude. And, and then being told, well, because we're a little different and there's all kinds of problems associated with the pace in the world of, of car and oil and all of these things. And, and, and I think in light of that, like maybe it's no surprise 
to understand why they responded in the way that they did when they had a terrible incident of, of violence in their school. Do you remember this? Like, and I think it was 2006 or seven that this deranged madman came into the school and killed a bunch of the Amish kids and then turned the gun on himself and killed himself. And my goodness, like, it, it was totally stunning. But in that space, the Amish came together and they responded in a way that caught the whole world's attention. I don't know if you remember what they did, but the first thing that they did was they went to the shooter's family and they said, you must be really upset. Is there anything that we can do for you? And then people began to pour out thousands and thousands of dollars to the Amish. They took that money and they created scholarships for the children of the person who killed their kids. And then the funerals rolled around and they went to the funeral of their own kids, but then they went to the funeral of the shooter so that they could be with his family and lament their loss with them. I was on the other side of the the globe at that time. I was preaching in Australia. And it's interesting because Australia is not particularly uh, like religious country, you know, not not a Christian nation per se. In fact, it's very sort of post-Christian and you don't have a lot of good Christianity in the headlines. But what made the front page of the paper in Australia when I was there was the title, the headline, Amazing Grace. Why would they do what they did? And it wasn't just the story of the terror, but the story of the response of the Amish. And now there's books been written on it. In fact, uh, we, we wrote a little book called Jesus for President, and we have a section where we wink at the Amish, and it's called Amish for Homeland Security. Because <laughs> we go, what if that's the way we had responded? You know, what would the world look like if we had a different way of thinking of evil and violence in the world, and we, we actually took the cross of Jesus seriously, and if we want to know what love looks like when it stares evil in the face, it says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And as Paul writes, it's this cross which is foolishness to the wisdom of the world. It doesn't make any sense, and yet it, 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 it's the most sensible thing that's ever happened, that, that God is, is redeeming everything, and we're called to conform to those patterns uh, rather than the patterns of our world. I, I love how the great French thinker Jacques Ellul, he said, I'm not sure where we get the idea that Christians are just meant to be normal, conformists to everything. He said, Christians throughout history have been holy troublemakers, creators of uncertainty, people who will not accept the world as it is, but insist on it becoming the world that we dream of, that God dreams of. And we got a lot of work to do as we see the world now. Or we even see within the church, you know, there's signs that things are not always well, even in the church. Dr. Martin Luther King, who many of us will celebrate tomorrow, you know, he said that the most segregated hour in the world is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when we gather for worship. But we of all people should be folks that are doing the work of reconciliation and, and having social networks that look different from the patterns of the world, that we're people that are reconciling to each other. It's that imagination that we get to have. And, and it's, it's spawned, I think, by the Spirit of God in us. I, I remember one great story. I got to visit a community um, along the border of the U.S. and Mexico. And uh, these are Christians that are deeply concerned about some of the issues there. And they, they've created little Christian hospitality houses for folks that are working for documentation. They have lawyers that are fighting through the courts so folks can get their documentation. But then they've, they've done these little, uh, th- th- this little thing where they get 
out into the, the streets and they, they have a worship service along the wall. And so they have Christians that are living in Mexico that walk to the wall and they've got Christians living on the other side in the U.S. that meet each other there and then they worship Jesus together along the wall and then they serve each other communion by throwing it over the wall. I love that image. The image that we are, are people that are born again. And that have this sense that we are going to tear down the walls, that we are going to welcome the very uh, people that Jesus was with. And, and I think that means that we, 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 we live in ways that fascinate the world with God's love. And, and, and I'm convinced that the gospel spreads best, not through force, but through fascination. Isn't that right? That, that it seems that's what Jesus is doing, is fascinating people with God's love. And the great saints, you know, are folks that have, have lived in ways that fascinate people with God's love. And when, we, when we started our community, we really um, uh, were, were kind of looking for examples of that. And Mother Teresa was still alive at the time. So we, uh, we wrote her a letter and we said, hey, hey, Mother Teresa, this is what we got going on in Philly. We, we feel like we're just scratching the surface, though. We, we really need some help. Can we come work with you? And, you know, like, we don't know if you give internships, but, hey, here we are, you know. And then we waited, and uh, Mother Teresa didn't write us back, um, you know, and a slacker. Uh, so then, like, uh, eventually, though, I got really impatient, and I just started calling some nuns on the phone, and uh um, you know, I'm trying to get a hold of Mother Teresa. You got some digits, and and they half of them thought it was a prank call. But then finally, one nun she gave me a number for Calcutta, and we called. And I was uh, I was expecting a, sort of a polite greeting on the other line, like missionaries of charity. How can we help you? <laughs> you know, and no such luck. I just heard this raspy old voice answer the phone. Hello. I'm like. Awesome. I got the wrong number, and I knew that it was $4 a minute, so I just start talking fast. You know, I'm like, I'm calling from the United States. We're trying to get a hold of the Missionaries of Charity or Mother Teresa or someone in Calcutta. Can you help me? And then I just hear, this is the Missionaries of Charity. This is Mother Teresa. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm the Pope, you know. And, and then I said, well, uh, okay, uh, we want to come work with you, uh, can we? And she said, yeah, come on out. And then I start asking what I think are logical questions. I'm like, uh, okay. Where are we going to sleep? What are we going to eat? You know, and she says, Mother Teresa says, Oh, God takes care of the lilies and the sparrows. God will take care of you. <laughs> How do you argue with that? You know, so we just went over and we lived this adventure. You know, I was in the orphanages. I was in the home for the dying and we were learning so much. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the one thing that, that, I will never forget about Mother Teresa that's marked my memory is every morning we would get up for prayer at like 5 o'clock in the morning and we would take off all of our shoes as we went into worship and we, we sat before the cross of Jesus and, and uh, prayed that, that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus. And, and I can remember as we were doing that, looking at her feet and noticing that her feet were terribly deformed. Of course, I wasn't sure what to make of it. You know, I kind of, part of me wondered if she had caught leprosy or something, uh, but I, w I wasn't about to ask her, you know, oh, hey, Mother Teresa, what's up with that? You know, like, like, this is Mother Teresa. But one day, one of the sisters came up, and they said, have you noticed her feet? And I said, yeah, I have. And she said, her feet are deformed because we get just enough shoes donated for everybody to get a pair. 
and she doesn't want to have a worse pair, someone else to have a worse pair of shoes than she has. So she digs through all of the donations when we get them. She picks out the worst pair of shoes, and she takes them for herself. And after years and years and decades and decades of wearing the worst pair of shoes, it's deformed her feet. What would the world look like if we took this idea of loving our neighbor as ourselves, or honoring the needs of others above our own that seriously, you know? And it wasn't just Mother Teresa that taught me that, but we had these kids in Calcutta. You know, Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, go in like a kid. And there are these kids that had uh, almost nothing growing up. They were orphans on the street. They begged every day. Um, and some of them were 8 or 10 years old. But we would get these kids together, and we would throw them street parties. And we would, uh, uh, you know, open up the fire hydrants and blow bubbles. And the nuns would jump rope with them and stuff. I mean, it was fun times, you know. And there was one kid that I... Uh, I got to know real well, and I, I, it was his birthday. He came up, and he said, it's my birthday. And my heart just melted, and I thought, okay, I got to get this kid a birthday present. So I start thinking what to get him, and um, it's 120 degrees, so I, I decide I'm going to go get him an um, ice cream. And I get him this ice cream cone. I have no idea how long it had been since he had ice cream because he gets it, and he's just absolutely mesmerized. So he, he holds it, and he's just sort of stunned. He's like, and then his instinct is, this is too good to keep for myself. So he yells at all the other kids, and he goes, we've got ice cream. He brings them all over and lines them up, and he's like, everybody's going to get a lick. And he goes down the line. He's like, your turn. Your turn. Your. Full circle, all the way back to me. And he's like, Shane, you get a lick too. I, I sort of fake a lick. I got this whole spit phobia thing, you know, so I'm like, Awesome. So tasty, you know, and but that kid, he got it. He knew the secret that Mother Teresa knew, that Jesus knew, that the best thing to do with the best things in life is to give them away and to share them and not hoard all of God's blessings for ourselves. And yet it flies in the face of so much that we hear in our culture and even within the church so often that's about what we can get from God and finding our best life and all this. If we're not careful, we lose the secret, which is if we want to find our life, we got to give it away. It's what we're made for. And not only will it bring other people to life, but it will bring us to life as well. And as you see that, and we think of the stories of our lives one of the things that Mother Teresa used to say is our best sermon is our life. Some of us are good at preaching the gospel with our mouths. But if we really want to preach the gospel, we preach it with our lives. And at our best, when, when, when people ask us, what do you believe? We hope that we can say, look how I live. And you'll see what I believe. And you'll see the God that I serve and see the gospel that I proclaim. And, and I'm so excited today because it feels like almost everywhere we go, there's people that are preaching a beautiful gospel with their lives. And sometimes I'm traveling, I meet people, and I'm like, oh, gosh, I wish I had a camera or recorder or something. And there's this one kid that I met that's one of hundreds and hundreds of folks just like you that's trying to figure this thing out of how to love God with our whole lives. And this kid's named Mark Weaver. He's from California, and I just want you to catch a little glimpse of his story because he's one kid that's been set on fire with divine imagination and is living differently in the world because of Christ. While I was in California, I started reading The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. So much to my brother Rick. He sent me a copy of the book, 
And as I was reading it, I was totally inspired and I was feeling convicted inside living in one of the richest communities in America, in Orange County, California, and I was part of these mega churches. I wasn't living as selfless as I could be. And would you really give all your possessions away, sell them to the poor and follow me? And I was challenged and convicted. Would I really do something like that? But I kind of shrugged it off. I was like, well, I really don't even have any possessions. But the next day, some of my friends came to visit me from Indiana and California, and they wanted to go get on the show The Price is Right. Here it comes from the Bob Parker studio at CBS in Hollywood. We got in line, and they actually called my name up. And Mark Weaver, come on down. The actual retail price is $14.49. Mark, you're a winner. Mark, you're a winner. 60, Bob. 60. He's going to try 60. We're looking for the back of the car, and there it is. $17,260. I'll shake the hand of a winner. You have to be at 85 cents to get into the showcase, and you did it. Be in the showcase at the end of the show with his new range in romantic Paris. Of her brand new convertible. $6,192. Mark is the winner. I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown on the prices right. I won almost $60,000 in prizes. I won two cars, a trip for two to Paris, a stove, and a rug. It was really cool. But then I remembered the words that Shane wrote in his book, so I decided to sell the two cars that I won on the show right back to the dealership. And I used the money to fly to Uganda, Africa, and I just decided to live in orphanages for a while and just give all the money away to them. The orphanage Mark lived in is for children who lost their parents to AIDS. For each one of these beautiful children here, two people died from the AIDS epidemic. Nothing ever felt better than to just give away the money rather than to keep it and get something for myself. I've never been without a meal. I've never been without a shirt on my back. Stuff like that is the least I could do. And if everybody gave a little bit like that, I think this world would be a better place. We'll be right back. One of the things that's incredible as you talk to Mark is he doesn't feel like he did anything extraordinary. You know, he just did something that made sense in light of the gospel and the goodness of God. And uh, I think that's that's the real secret is that he came to life as much as anyone else. And and uh, Mother Teresa at one point was this reporter came up to her and, and he said, uh, <laughs> very starry eyed. He was like, Mother Teresa, you're such a saint. I couldn't do what you do if you paid me a million dollars. And Mother Teresa said, I wouldn't do it for a million dollars either. 
I do it because it's what I'm made for. And that is the real invitation that all of us have, I guess, isn't it? Is, is to take whatever we are and whatever we have and offer it to God. And not all of us are going to win $35,000 on the price is right, but maybe we have an extra room in our home that we can create a family for somebody that needs it. Uh, not all of us are going to to go to Calcutta, but Mother Teresa said so well that we don't have to go to Calcutta to find Calcutta. We just pray that God will have, give us the eyes to see the pain, the loneliness, because it's everywhere. And pray that we would have the courage to respond. And one of my favorite stories in the scripture is, is the story of the miracle of the thousands of people that are fed. But it's so cool because if you read the story, it begins with the disciples that see all these hungry people. And they come up to Jesus. And, and it's cool that they saw the pain. They saw the suffering. And they come to Jesus, also a good thing. And they say, Jesus, there's all these hungry people. Why don't you do something? And Jesus' response is awesome. Jesus goes, you do something. And they start thinking, okay, where are we going to come up with enough money? That's thousands of dollars. Like, this is months' wages we would need. And where's the nearest Walmart, you know? And they're still thinking. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. What do you have? And there's a little kid that's got a few fish and loaves and is willing to offer it. And they say, we got a few fish and loaves. But there's thousands of people. But God takes that. Jesus takes that and adds a little God stuff, which is cool. And then, like, thousands of people eat. And there's baskets left over. And I think what we get to learn from that story is that we offer what broken fragments of our lives that we are to God and God does something beautiful and wants us to be a part of the miracle. Because a lot of times we can say to God, God, why do you allow all this suffering and pain and poverty in the world? And if we listen closely, we will hear God say back, you tell me, you are my hands and my feet to bring the kingdom of God on earth together, that, that God doesn't want to change the world without us. So, friends, I, I think that's, that's the, the, the gift of what we get to do is to say, give me the eyes to see the pain and the suffering around. And it's not so that people will see how good we are, but so that they will taste and feel how good is our God. And sometimes we Christians have been one of the biggest obstacles to people tasting and feeling the goodness of God. So let us go and embody that love. And we might, um, I heard one pastor say, we got to always remember that this is God's revolution, that this is God's love uh, that we're wooing people towards. And, and he, he, this pastor said, we can learn from the donkey that rode Jesus into Passover. And, you know, he, he said, that donkey, I mean, here's Jesus riding into the Passover festival, thousands of people, you know, the biggest religious festival. And Jesus is riding in. Here he is, the Messiah on a donkey. And uh, all the people are lying the streets. And that donkey might have started to think a little something about himself, you know, and strutting his stuff a little bit. And uh, this pastor said, that donkey might have started seeing the palm branches and hearing the hosannas and been like, Hosanna, that's not my name, but what? You know, and started walking a little bit. Uh, and, and then the donkey, though, had to learn a lesson that this is not about the donkey. It's about the one who's riding the donkey. And we all need to learn that lesson that we're just the asses that get to bring Jesus in. But what a beautiful gift it is that the God of the universe wants to allow us to be vessels of the kingdom of God. Amen? So let us be carriers of the king 
and bearers of the light. Let me pray for us. O God of love and all grace, sweet Lord, forgive us for the mess that we've made of the world. Forgive us and give us new imagination. Renew our minds that we might live in ways that don't conform to the patterns of this world but that we might live in ways that don't compute, ways that embody your grace and fascinate the world with your love. Whether we are doctors or teachers or business people or students, we pray that you would take our gifts and our passions and connect them to the brokenness of this world. And we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in Montana, in Philadelphia, in Calcutta, and throughout the world that your most perfect dream would come on earth and that the world would taste of your love, that they would know we are Christians by our love and that they would be drawn to your grace because they see a little bit of of your grace in us. We pray all of this, Lord, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.